all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. I don't think too many people think about how much their microbiome is affecting and regulating their metabolism. It actually drives metabolism. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 192 with our good friend Aaron Murphy and Viome Gut Health Expert, Dr. Deborah Held. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn not three things, but five, what oxalates are and what they do for you, the relationship between oxalates and theracurmin, what causes your gut microbiome to activate, what shows up in your microbiome that shows your gut is inflamed, and the role of artificial intelligence in personalized health. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners join us from all over the world, from Finland to France and from Belize to Belgium this week. Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lime Ninjas. We really appreciate you listening. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We are glad you tuned in. This week, our top 10 tuning tune-in, not tuning, <laughs> tune-in cities are... Starting in number 10, Glendora, California. Number 9, Denver, Colorado. Number 8, Laguna Niguel, California. Number 7, Rutland, Vermont. Number 6, El Cajon, California. Number 5, Gainesville, Florida. Number 4, Malibu, California. Number 3, I'm detecting a trend. This, I know, right? This week. <laughs> number 3... Dara, Australia. Go Australia. Number two, Miami, Florida. And number one this week, Johnson City, Tennessee. So close to the song. What song? The Rock Me Mama, the Wagon Wheel song. What? To Jackson City, Tennessee. (laughs) Okay. I don't know that song. Okay. It's way too late for this one. (laughs) Also, do you know your Lyme score? If not, do yourself a favor, head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and fill out the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free. 
Yes, it is. It's a handy-dandy little tool that you can use once a month. All right, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Aaron Murphy and naturopathic doctor Deborah Held. Aaron Murphy became symptomatic with Lyme disease in high school with fatigue, depression, and anxiety. She eventually turned to nutrition to try and control her symptoms. Her journey to health has been over the course of 16 years. While Dr. Deborah Held started her career in healthcare as a registered nurse and graduating in 1979. In 2008, she graduated from the Bowker Institute of Naturopathic Medicine. In 2017, she began working for Viam and is now the team lead for translational sciences. That is a mouthful. Thanks, Aurora. And here is our interview with Lime Ninja Aaron Murphy and gut expert Deborah Held. Hello, Aaron. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, McKay Rippey. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I'm very excited to talk to you and about your gut. Well, the bacteria in your gut. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, my famous gut. <laughs> well, it's going to be now. <laughs> it's going to get its 15 minutes of fame. It deserves it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're hysterical. <laughs> Absolutely. So you just recently got tested by a fairly new company out there called Viome. And mm -hmm. they've got some high-tech analysis of what's going on, and they're trying to get all savvy and using artificial intelligence to learn the interaction of all these bacteria. And, you know, anytime there's a famous physics problem, it's called the three-body problem. So basically, they understood what was going on with the gravity between two objects like the moon and the earth. But once you put in a third object, like the earth and moon and the sun, then all of a sudden the certainty of the calculations went way down. So when you're talking about hundreds of bacteria or maybe thousands of bacteria that are in your gut all interacting, it's like we can't, we can't do the math. We need computers to sort it out. So they're, they're doing some of this. And what, what struck you about using Viome as a, as a company? Cause I know you've used others at this point. One thing that I was really excited about with Viome was that they actually made food recommendations, and they were one of the only companies that I knew so far that was interested in things like oxalate issues. Like they, they acknowledged that certain people are missing oxalobacter formagenes, which is a bacteria in our gut that helps us break down oxalates. And because of that, you know, eating something like spinach, which is a very high oxalate food, would not be great for someone like me. So they make recommendations, and as you'll hear in the interview with Dr. Held that we had, she talks about how moderation is key. You know, like it's it's not great to avoid all oxalate foods, but it's important to kind of keep that that list of foods that you're eating that are high oxalate a little bit lower to moderate. And so that was great. I thought that that was wonderful because doing that and getting to a lower oxalate diet was one of the keys for me to get a more functional life back in the past uh, year. So um, I was so excited that this company actually was tying things together, and I felt like they would maybe help a lot of people who are in my shoes or trying to figure out similar health issues. So talk about functional life. What does that mean? I mean, so oxalates are a, a mineral or actually a, a molecule that's in certain foods, particularly green leafy foods, and they can yeah. bind with minerals and hamper your mineral 
digestion, but they also can trigger histamine problems. It's really kind of interesting, the uh, the oxalate issue. Yeah, and there's there's a great group because I feel like I can't do it justice, but there's a great group on Facebook that's led by a researcher named Susan Owens, and it's called Trying Low Oxalate. And she does a really fantastic job of keeping the research in the group very much um, focused on PubMed peer-reviewed articles, which I think is um, maybe hard to find in some online support groups. <laughs> she really, her and some of the other moderators really do a good job of trying to get people to only post things that have been peer-reviewed and and then all of the moderators will review the post. But she talks a lot about how the oxalates bind with minerals. And so a lot of people in the group end up with some uh, symptoms of like magnesium deficiency or calcium deficiency. Uh, there's a lot of people in there who have electrolyte issues. So I was one of them. I, I was I, I had taken an antibiotic about five years ago, uh, Cipro. And from my perspective, I can't confirm this. But it seems to me that after that, I started getting these major oxalate issues. And as you say, when um, oxalates are really high in some in somebody, sometimes they can also act as mast cell disruptors. And so I was having a lot of both like the oxalate symptoms and a lot of histamine intolerance symptoms. Like I started to not even be able to tolerate any kind of fermented um, products, which is really challenging because when you're trying to heal your gut, you know, every piece of advice is like, oh, you should make bone broth and start fermenting your own vegetables. I went so as far as to buy all of these like fermenting kits online. And then I made all these fermented vegetables and my body was just in a state of uh, of stress at the time. And I couldn't tolerate the histamine. But now where I'm at and when I, when I say functional, it's like, I'm able to sleep much better at night. Uh, I still have my bad days, especially if I don't watch my oxalate intake. I have more energy during the day. I can actually get out of my house. For a while, I was pretty much housebound. What else can I do that I couldn't before? I sweat. Well, I wasn't sweating for a while, which is, I know it sounds weird to be super excited about being able to sweat. But, no, that's a big deal. Um, yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, because it's one of the major ways that we get rid of toxins in our body besides uh, urine and going into the bathroom. So yeah, I'm sweating again, which I think has to do with, you know, my electrolytes being balanced and my um, detoxification pathways moving again. Just, it was interesting. It was like so many things that I didn't think were related to this were changing. And, and I, I just want to point out, like I was eating an extremely high oxalate diet. It wasn't like just an average diet. Like I was eating, I was drinking uh, green drinks from Starbucks. I was going to say, were you sometimes. juicing? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, so I mean, that's the thing. By juicing, you can up your oxalates to crazy levels because there's no way you could eat that much salad. But, you know, right. you, you throw a couple, a couple bag full of kale and spinach into a juicer and all of a sudden you can, you know, drink that over an hour. Yeah. And I mean, part of it is when you're out and about and you're trying to eat healthier, especially in certain neighborhoods, like my neighborhood doesn't exactly have a lot of, you know, Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and things like that in the vicinity. So the Starbucks options of like, oh, there's some green drinks and they have some salads and stuff. You know, it was it was it seemed reasonably healthy for me when I was out and it was quick and easy. So that's why I, was, I wasn't like making those choices necessarily because I wanted to juice. It was just like oh, I'm out, and oh, here's a green juice that I can try. You know, it was it was just sort of a lack of options. And so I was drinking a lot of those when I would be out and, and traveling my neighborhood. 
I was making a lot of sweet potato soup, which sweet potatoes are also pretty high oxalate. I was using almond flour instead of regular flours because I was gluten-free. I was eating a ton of nuts. And what else was I doing? Oh, and also some supplements like excess vitamin C gets converted into oxalate and milk thistle seed is also extremely high oxalate. And I was taking some vitamin C and I also happened to be on a supplement that contained milk thistle seed. And so, so my, my oxalate intake, I feel like maybe even would have been challenging for somebody with proper bacteria. Um, it was just, just a function of what was happening because I didn't know about that compound until about a year and a half or two years ago. So it was interesting to me to think that, oh, eating healthy isn't always what I think it is. (laughs) So true. And the other thing with oxalates, I just want to point out, there's there's a genetic component as well, of course, with, with everything. And so I pulled up your genetic test. Um, mm-hmm. And the, you, you have some interesting things associated with oxalates too. Now, it's the same thing that you'll hear in the interview with, with the gut biome that you can't make a one-to-one correlation in most of right. these. They has to do with pathways. And then, you know, once a one pathway in the body is uh, changed a little bit, there are so many compensatory pathways that, you know, it, it's, it's a web. It's not a, it's not a pipe that goes uh, a b c d it's it's really just a whole web of interconnections and but we we do see these nodes and one way to know for sure like you said is gee when i ate oxalate foods once i was able to isolate that and cut them out of my diet i felt so much better um but you right. do you do have some genetic indications that uh, you you may have some problems internally as well with oxalates uh, there's no smoking gun here, but um, you have some variations. I'm trying to – I scrolled past it, so now I'm trying to backpedal the fast as, as I can. While you're scrolling – Yeah, thank I'll, you. Save um, I'll me. Just say that, I'll <laughs> save you here. So sometimes like in, in the lo- trying low oxalate group, the woman who runs it said that sometimes people who have these oxalate issues, she suspects that they might – have some kind of genetic issues with either thiamine or uh, B6 pyridoxine. Hmm. And when I, I had a, a consult with her, and she's really fantastic. I mean, I, I recommend if people truly think they have an oxalate problem that they join the Trying Low Oxalate group on, on Facebook and see if they can get um, a consult with Susan Owens, who runs the group. But she said to me that she thinks that some certain families have genetic issues with thiamine, which is B1, and thiamine transport. And she sees it in a lot of families that have histories of alcoholism, that have histories of um, some other conditions seem to cluster around thiamine transport issues. And because of that, she thinks that these people are relying more on their gut microbiome for the B vitamins. And then when they, these certain families that have this, you know, transport issue or these genetic issues with B1, when they take an antibiotic, they suffer more because they were, over, they, because of their genetics, they were more reliant on their gut microbiome than the average person would be. And so antibiotics are a little bit more destructive to these people than they would be to others who maybe don't have genetic issues. Yeah, and um, so, yeah, so she went through and she's like, you have a lot of thiamine like related symptoms she's like Mm -hmm. if you google any of your symptoms and google thiamine deficiency she's like you can find pubmed articles supporting it and she's like so that might be something interesting for you to consider 
Um, so have you tried that? Have you tried supplementing? I did. I was, I was taking thiamine for a while and I was definitely feeling, feeling much better on it. And, and also uh, biotin is huge. It's a game changer for me. Um, it, it does things, it regulates my cycle. It makes my hair look so much better. Um, and one of the relationships to oxalate and biotin is that when your oxalates are too high, um, I think it actually lowers your biotin and, uh, biotin is also, I forget why it's used in some kind of enzyme that helps keep like fungal infections in check. And I was also having some issues with like toenail fungus coming up. And I feel like that when I take, I take biotin, I take B1, um, I'm starting to get like a better hold on things like that as well. And it's just, it's really fascinating. It's like finding this particular part of piece of the puzzle out has been really helpful for me. I doubt that it's the whole picture of my entire health. <laughs> no, that but, never is. Yeah, but it has seemed to be a piece of the puzzle that yeah. has given given me, as I said, like I'm not housebound anymore. I'm yeah. getting out and about again. And that's amazing because I was in really bad shape for a while. I'm trying to talk and get up the idea, uh, promote the idea of nodes in, in this, you know, there's a web and there are different, different people have different nodes and it's just based on your genetics and your environment, how you're brought up, what diseases right. you've had, like Lyme and co-infections and viruses and so forth. So these different nodes become more important and clearly biotin is one of these nodes. And it's not, the, like you said, it's not the entire puzzle. It's not the entire web, but it's an important intersection. And if you may maintain that intersection, then a lot of other things will sort themselves out. So you don't have to intervene at each individual node if you can find these major intersections and you can get a lot more done. Right. And, and you know, one thing that's really interesting uh, about oxalates is that when the body is under a great amount of stress and oxidative stress, it will, it can produce endogenous oxalates. So even outside of your diet, it's like the body internally can produce oxalates. Yes. So if somebody's really sick, they have chronic illness or, you know, they had a really bad reaction to something, they were in a car accident. Sometimes in the wake of that, when the body is in this acute stress phase, there can be production of endogenous oxalates. And if you don't have the proper B1 pathways or the proper B6 pathways or the bacteria to help you break it down, it can still cause problems even if your diet is, you know, low to moderate in terms of oxalate consumption. So there's an enzyme called glyoxalate, and if that's not functioning properly, then basically it backs up, and one of the backup uh, things that are produced is uh, calcium oxalate. And so that gene is the GRHPR gene. And you, mm -hmm. so th there are three SNPs in the report and you have a homozygous variant on one of them. And it's pretty rare. Only about 12% mm -hmm. of the people in the system have that. And then interestingly enough, one of the SNPs that you're wild type, so no variants at all, but it's also pretty rare and that's 12.4%. Mm -hmm. So this, you, your functioning of this uh, gene may be a little bit, uh, abnormal, different than most, different than, than normal. And then you <laughs> also have a handful of variants in the HOGA1 genes. And that's also part of this pathway, which breaks down essentially, uh, what is it? 
it's a conversion of glyoxylate into glycolate. Mm-hmm. And if the, again, if that doesn't oh. happen, the glyoxylate builds up into oxalate. So this that's is, that's, so that's part yeah. of the normal process, right? Normal body functions. But if it's not getting processed well, then that's when the glyoxylate builds up. The, the glycolate, the end product is easily, we pee it out with no problem, but the glyoxylate needs to be converted. And if that's not being converted at a good rate, then it can back up and the body then tries to get rid of it by turning it into oxalates. And I'm pretty sure on my organic acid test from last year, or the, or I think it was last year that I took it, that my glyoxalate was actually high yeah. and, in addition to, in addition to my urinary oxalate. So it was, um. Yeah, that whole pathway was just sort of like backing up for me. Interesting. And it'd be interesting now that you've figured out the biotin and maybe those other B vitamins if all of a sudden that pathway's uh, working a little bit better. Yep. I'm definitely going to rerun an organic acids test this year. Um, and and I think what we're getting at here, and, and one thing that's interesting to keep in mind, it's like, these are all pieces. It's like, okay, there's this possible genetic component. There's these possible vitamin metabolism issues. There's this possible microbiome issue where I'm lacking oxalobacter formagenes. There's, you know, it's like we're painting this whole picture um, and it's not just one thing. It's like the way all of these things are interacting together. Because I think a lot of people, we get focused on one particular type of test, but I think in order to overcome any kind of health issue, um, we need to look at the whole picture and we need to kind of paint put it all together to get our context. Aaron, that's a great lead up to our interview with Dr. Held, who's the team lead of operations in translational science for biome. That's quite a mouthful. (laughs) Translation basically means your body taking information from your DNA and putting them to the RNA. And so she's researching, she mentions in the interview, active bacteria. And that's the first time I've really heard that concept that you can have inactive bacteria in your gut. So I don't know if they're just on pause or they're in cyst form or what the deal is. So she's saying that if you DNA the bacteria in your gut, you're going to find a lot in there. But if you just look at the RNA, there are going to be a lot fewer active species in there. And I'm going to be very curious to follow up with that idea and see if how that plays out uh, as that information kind of trickles out there and see what research is out there between active and inactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, a very interesting line of research that is coming out more and more is uh, about uh, microbial communication and what the microbes are actually secreting to communicate with one another. So things like the metabolites that they're producing, you know, like bacteria are very good at producing short chain fatty acids. So things like butyrate or propyrinate. Um, and I think there's maybe acetate. And so you can measure their byproducts and, and what they're producing from their own, their own metabolism. And then there's also um, these kind of micro vesicles. They're, they're like these little vesicles that the bacteria form inside of them and then push out through their cell membrane to each other and they contain they can contain genetic material they can contain other metabolites and stuff like that and if you can measure these little particles that they're sending back and forth for communication you can also i think identify which ones are being active versus which ones are maybe in a more inactive state or not really participating in the whole uh, health of the of the host of the human host (laughs) yeah it's it's absolutely fascinating
Hello. I'll take the lead on this. Basically, what we're very interested in to do, I host a podcast for people with Lyme disease, and Aaron has been a guest of mine over the years, and we've also collaborated on some other projects. And when this opportunity with Viome came up, we were very excited to see what the results will be. She has quite the amazing Lyme story, uh, including trips to the ER and mysterious refeeding syndrome things. And one of the last things we've, or she has not looked at was her her gut biome and and okay. here we and here we are so okay. dr hell do you have access to her report i do well i have access to the data that went into the report so we can uh, speak to that one thing that i do that i do know um from like the last uh two years or so one of the last things that i figured out about my health that was really helpful for me was that i seem to have an issue with high oxalate foods so at first like a few years ago, I um, did some of the U-biome testing and I found out that I didn't have any um, after formagenes to help with the process of breaking down the oxalic acid. And then I've had this great opportunity come up to do the biome testing and I know that you guys make food recommendations and everything. So I was so excited when this came up and likewise in my results, I can, I can see some recommendations for avoiding some of the foods that I have been avoiding with a lot of success. Good. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, you do need that oxalobacter and antibiotics are, are definitely a, a way to decrease it. So we are really conscious of oxalate-containing foods in our recommendations. And if people have great amounts of that bacteria, then they're, it's sort of a no-holds-barred. And if they've got just a small amount of it that's active, then some of the lower oxalate foods are fine. But if there's no oxalobacter, we generally have all of the foods with moderate or high oxalates on a minimized list. So hopefully that's helpful. Can we? Yeah, it was great. I mean, can can we pause there and just, because you guys are like jumping into the deep end of the pool off the high dive. Can we rewind just a little bit and just help folks who may not be familiar? What, what is an oxalate? What's a high oxalate food and why would people maybe have problems with that? Okay, so oxalates are normal components in plants, and they are protective to the plant. And if they get into the human system and our microbes can't break them down and change them, they can end up precipitating um, and causing kidney stones. And there's a there's a link to gout, and um, they they precipitate and can cause all sorts of complications in humans. So when you're eating small amounts of foods that contain oxalates, it's fine. Um, but when you're eating larger amounts and can't process them, it can, can lead to trouble. And they're, the, they're generally present in um, leafy green vegetables. But spinach is the, is the number one food for oxalate. And they're also present in, in foods that are just, the vegetables that are just really colorful. So we want to make sure that we're getting a mix of colorful food in the diet because the polyphenols or the other um, antioxidants that are in the plants are helpful, but it's all about balance. So it doesn't mean don't eat foods with any oxalate. It means if you can't metabolize oxalates, you don't want to eat spinach every day. And Aaron... And when you say precipitate, Dr. Held, um, I'm sorry, did you, did you mean like you're, you're talking about how it binds with things like magnesium and calcium? and Mm -hmm. can form the stones. um, It precipitates, yeah. Okay. 
So. And then, Aaron, were you able to identify that previously that the oxalate foods gave you a problem? I was. I did. I started to suspect it. I guess it was maybe like a year and a half ago because I started to notice that I felt horrible after eating leafy greens and after I was eating, I was eating a lot of sweet potato soup and I was using almond flour for a lot of things. And mm-hmm. my health just was, I was starting to get a lot of symptoms with magnesium deficiency and, and calcium deficiency. And um, my other minerals just seemed to be getting messed up. And I was trying to find a reason for that. And I asked in some of the online forums and people mentioned oxalates. And um, so that's when I decided to first test my microbiome through Ubiome. And then as I heard about Biome through uh, Deepak and Naveen, um, I was so excited to try that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness, they're talking about oxalates. This is so great. And um, I was just really excited for that. And it was really cool to confirm what I was experiencing in my body through that testing. And then once again, an all-out ban on foods with oxalate isn't common sense either. It's all about moderation, right? Because we right. do need some of the polyphenols. It's just you don't want to be indulging in, in those sorts of foods if you haven't got the ability to metabolize them. We also see other uh, properties in the microbiome that can maximize other polyphenols like elagic acid, which is really high in pomegranate. So if you have the uh, bacteria that helps metabolize elagic acid, then pomegranate's helpful to you. And if you don't have that microbe, then it's just extra sugar for you. So, um, mm. But once again, it's all about balance. It doesn't mean that if you don't have that particular mix of, of bacteria, it's a problem. It just means... Um, Moderation. Life right. is all about moderation. So. Yep. <laughs> and then specifically, again, what were the, can you just say the class of bacteria that was low, Aaron, on your report that relates to the oxalates? It's uh, oxalobacter formagenes. Okay. And is there a way to support these and help them grow so you have more of them? Well, there isn't a probiotic that specifically uh, repopulates with oxalobacter, but if it's in the microbiome and just not active, diversity in your food, um, not exposing yourself to toxins in your food through processed food, and then uh, probiotics, prebiotics, just keeping the microbiome and the integrity of the intestinal lining as healthy as possible by eating real food that Mother Nature made. Um, <laughs> and and <laughs> isn't it just funny how we're going right back to that? All the science in the world can tell us Great. And so what else did you see as low in your report, Erin? Let me look at, let's see. Well, one thing, I actually saw one thing that was really high that was kind of interesting, and I was curious about that, um, Dr. Held. I saw that I had um, extremely high E. coli. Like for healthy people, the uh, activity level is 3.47, and mine was 55.26%. It was... The isolate, it was E. coli isolate 15. And, and even for that one, when I looked at the overall, I guess it is the um, higher level of classification of E. coli, my activity was 55.26%. But then when you go into the very specific um, species, it was the E. coli isolate 15 and the healthy activity is 5.86%. And my activity was 36.10%. I was just curious, is that the E. coli that is known to cause foodborne illness or is it different? 
E. coli, as long as it's in your intestinal tract and the lining of your intestine is intact, is is meant to be there. We actually expect to see it in the colon. When it's added to a system that that isn't in balance and the other microbes can't sort of police the the intestinal environment um, and it's mm-hmm. overgrown and you have a leaky gut and the toxin from E. coli is absorbed into your bloodstream, it causes problems. But we expect to see E. coli in the intestine. So this is the this is sort of the confusion with the test that we, we post the microbes that are there because they're they're kind of curious. But mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean that because you have E. coli or any other microbe in the intestine that you're infected with it. Mm-hmm. And as long as um, the other microbes are active, they they really do uh, police the environment themselves. What's more important in the vinyl testing is looking at the scores and the amount of um, chemistry analysis that goes into that to see that the there's a good balance of I don't want to call them good guys and bad guys, but pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory microbes, and that the enzymes that one is producing are being offset by the enzymes another one is producing um, is is what the biome recommendations are based on. So when we look at what the microbes are doing, it's more uh, a vital piece of information than which microbes are actually there. How was your score, Erin? Uh, um, when I look at the front, uh, the front I, in, in the results section, there is something called the wellness overview. I see my wellness breakdown and I see a metabolic fitness score, um, I'm, I'm right around medium for that. Uh, it does suggest that being in the high range is better for metabolic fitness. And then there's an inflammatory activity score. And I'm, I'm right towards, I'm just right out of the low range. So it suggests that getting into the low range is better. And is that what you're talking about, um, where you kind of balance out like what the quote unquote good bacteria are producing these metabolites and then the quote-unquote, bad bacteria are producing these other metabolites. And is that how you guys create the inflammatory activity score? Sort of balancing out. There are 10 or 12 different parameters, some of it looking at the actual taxonomy of the microbes, but also then looking at the enzymes they're producing and the pathways that they're upregulating. And, and, you know, everything that is um, existing in the microbiome depends on who else is there. Some days, some days I'm in a really good mood and it kind of depends on who I'm surrounded by. And other days, I mean, it may seem shocking. I'm in a bad mood and I behave very, very differently depending on who else is in the room. And so the environment for the microbiome is, is the same. And so if there's aggressive guys there and they're not being checked by less aggressive guys, then, then they can cause problems. So, you know, when you're fighting any sort of a chronic disease, you want to have the least inflammation um, possible. And, you know, once again, we get back to just eating real food and um, minimizing exposure to other environmental assaults and just letting the microbiome balance itself. And, and food's the key to doing that. Dr. Held, may I ask you some general questions about your company, Viome, and, and the testing? Sure. And about how many people have... Uh, been tested at this point. How many tests? Well, let's put it this way. How many tests have you run? Oh boy. Um, you have a ballpark believe, figure. Well, it's, it's between 
15 and 20,000, I believe. Yeah, that's incredible. And yeah. are you starting to get a sense? I mean, one of the things we hear all the time is gut biome diversity, right? And we need to have lots of different bacteria in there. Are you starting, is your company starting to get a sense of what a diverse gut looks like? I mean, is it 2,000 species? Is it 10,000? Is it 30,000? Is there? Is that starting well, to get clarified a little bit? It depends as well. Everything depends, I'm sorry. But um, it depends on where you are on the planet. It depends on how old you are. We definitely see, you know, young uh, intestines with lower diversity and then you're exposed to more things. The diversity improves and we can see aged people with less diversity. But, you know, I looked at the microbiome of somebody that's about 85 years of age and they had an incredible number of species and most of them were anti-inflammatory. So we can't make the assumption that just because you're old, you don't have the diversity. It really boils down to what you eat. What's your level of stress? Uh, Are you getting the sleep that you need? Are you having a diverse diet, when you look at people that eat toast and drink tea, <laughs> you can't expect them to have a, a lot of diversity in their microbiome because there's not a lot of diversity in their food. Uh, my dad, I just love my dad so much. He's almost 90. And to try and get that man to eat new food, it's just it's not going to happen, right? So it, once again, it's a, it's a lifestyle choice that people can make at any age. And if uh, if people were just aware of how their food made them feel, if they would just take the time to say, hey, I had steel-cut oatmeal for breakfast yesterday, and then I was just about to sleep at my desk, steel-cut oatmeal is a fantastic food for a lot of people. But if it's making you fall asleep at your desk 90 minutes later, it may not be ideal for you. And it's just putting awareness back into how you actually feel. We're just so busy and we're, we're just so numb that, that we don't make those assessments. Okay, so I'm going to push for numbers a little bit. <laughs> I want I want a number. So let's say somebody's, let's do it this way, healthy, somewhere between 25 and 35, no complaints. What What's the range we're looking at in terms of diversity? As far as active microbes, yeah. 100. Yeah, it's um, sometimes 300, 400 that we're seeing the activity of. And so our testing is looking at the RNA or the ribonucleic acid, which is only expressed when that microbe is active. Uh, okay. So when you're looking at a DNA sample, that shows you all the microbes that are present, but they may be sleeping, dormant. So to know that they're there isn't really helpful. To know that they are present and active and what, you know, looking at what proteins they are expressing and what enzymes that is upregulating is the biome difference. And so is that what's happening? Because my understanding is the biome can shift pretty quickly, especially if you eat different foods. Like if you decided, okay, tomorrow you're going to go vegan, within a few days you're gut bacteria would be significantly different. And is that, does, do some of them wake up and some of them go back to sleep, quote unquote? Is, mm-hmm. is that one of the things that's that, it. so there's this massive reservoir of bacteria in there and the act, that's, so this is a new concept to me. Then there's also then activity that needs to go on is like the this. The activity will change. Wow. That's right. And so, uh, and some of the changes that we see are really transient. So if you just have a bad night uh, and eat, food that wasn't your normal um, sort of diet, uh, you can have transient changes. And then when you go back to your normal way of eating, the characters that are more inclined to be there would 
sort of weight back up. So, and transient, I mean, I, I know it, it, this also depends, but how quickly does the, the biome change? Does it really, like, if you had a bad night, like you didn't sleep well, would it change that quickly? Like the next day your biome would be different? In, in a small sense. In a small uh, sense, okay. So you may see, yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't do a 180 degree turn just for that, but Within three to four weeks, I think if you decided to go on a, from being a, a vegan to being, uh, you know, meat forward paleo, uh, I think within about three weeks, you'd see a profound change in the microbiome mm-hmm. and likely a, a profound change in the way you felt, good or bad. And then, so this is my last question, then Aaron, I'll let you, I know you've probably got a thousand questions that you want to, want to ask at this point. And so one thing I've heard is that can take up to six months after a course of antibiotics for the biome to return to the normal setting. Do you have any information on that from, from your company that you're seeing people with uh, antibiotics and, and what happens to that and then the recovery phase? We've, it takes uh, varying lengths of time for individuals, depending on what, the, what state their microbiome was in when they took the antibiotics. Right, So if it's a strong microbiome and you have to take an antibiotic, your recovery time is likely not going to be as long. But if you were just, just kind of teetering on that, on the verge of, of um, unhealthy, and then you go on a probiotic or prebiotic, it may take longer. So we're looking at doing studies with people, but we would need to do their testing before they went on an antibiotic. And we wouldn't want anybody to go on an antibiotic just in the name of a study and wipe out those microbes. So, so getting the testing on, on that is, um, is something that we're considering doing. But, you know, it's rebuilding it with food first, uh, probiotics, prebiotics, polyphenols, um, which, I mean, you could get from your food, but in, in the case of being on an antibiotic, trying to rebuild it and have it robust faster than you could could go with food um, is a pretty good indication for the polyphenols. And and if the intestinal lining is inflamed and you don't have any of the microbes that make the anti-inflammatory molecules, taking a supplement of butyrate is is not a bad Mm -hmm. idea. So we can test for all of those things and um, hopefully advise people to have the strongest microbiome they can, knowing that anytime there's a change in their life as far as stress or health or diet, it's going to change what's there. And, you know, they may want to retest and dial into the way that whatever they're doing is making them feel. Thank you. Erin? You know, I would, while uh, Dr. Hubbs is talking, I was just pulling up some things on my results that I feel like were relevant to what you guys were saying. And um, inside the biome results, there's this wonderful chart of diversity versus richness. And they show you where everyone else stand, like compares on the graph. And then you're this little uh, red spot right in the middle of it. Or I'm in the middle. <laughs> I'm in okay. the middle of it all. But some, some people are maybe a little bit more rich or maybe a little bit more diverse. Um, and that's an interesting graph to me. I thought that was helpful because we hear so much about diversity. Well, and now we're going to have a lot of fun with that because we're going to uh, isolate or, or allow you to compare yourself with different cohorts. So, you know, athletes versus um, people that travel a lot versus, you know, we're sort of oh, trying wow. to define what cohort uh, people would be curious to compare themselves to. What does your 
diversity look like as a as an omnivore compared to the average diversity of somebody that's vegetarian and um, allowing those sorts of comparisons. And I mean, really, we should be comparing ourselves to ourselves, but but we're human, so we don't like to compare ourselves to other people. <laughs> I actually, I see that, I don't know if this was there when I first looked at it, or if it was, I, I just saw it now. Um, I see that you have compared to everyone, where I can see how I stand to everyone who has taken the test, and then I can compare myself to, it says healthy, so um, yep. I guess that's people who have a more healthy profile. So that healthy cohort, uh, there are a lot of things factored into it, but not being on antibiotics for a period of um, more than two years is part of it. And people that are exercising and, and don't have reported illnesses and want, aren't on prescriptive meds. And there's many, many things that go into defining what a healthy person is. But yeah, your score on the uh, compared to the healthy is is actually quite reasonable. Yeah, very good. And you also mentioned, um, I think you were talking a lot about uh, inflammation of the gut and everything, and you guys also have this great tool um, where you can you can figure out how much human RNA was in your sample. Uh, and that's important. Uh, so that's really that was that that was really interesting to me because it wasn't something I even thought about, and um, I could see that at least at that point in time I was in the ninety fourth percentile, which I think means there was a pretty significant amount of my own RNA. RNA, right? So, so RNA is going to be expressed. Human RNA is going to be expressed in the microbiome as you fluff human cells, right? Or maybe if you're mm-hmm. eating children, or I don't know. But um, we expect to see some there because those intestinal cells turn over about every four days. So, for mm-hmm. for people that have no turnover of intestinal cells. Uh, that's actually not a healthy thing. And for people that have a lot of turnover, it can sometimes be linked to acute inflammation where those cells are literally shedding more quickly than you would expect them to. Um, Mm -hmm. So the percentile is confusing. It's comparing you to everybody else. So if you are in the 94th percentile, you have more RNA in your sample than 94% of the population which mm-hmm. does show that there's potentially some inflammation. And we take that RNA and factor it into everything else. So how much butyrate are you producing? How many um, species do you have that are capable of producing butyrate? Uh, there's all sorts of other genes that are being expressed to show inflammation. So the RNA is just one factor of it. Um, mm-hmm. But it is it is kind of interesting. So you don't want to be at zero, but you also don't want to be at 100% either. And that was, that was very interesting. And then I guess one question that I had when you guys were talking and you were talking about microbial activity versus inactivity, I was curious as to what kind of things you're measuring from the bacteria. Like it sounds like you're definitely measuring some of the short chain fatty acids like butyrate. And I was wondering if you are, if you guys are doing or plan on doing at some point any kind of analysis with any of the microvesicles. Like I've been reading a lot about um, exosomes in the context of um, microbial communication and just how um, these different exosomes have, you know, different microRNAs and other different components inside of them depending on which type of cells they're coming from. And I was curious as to, I guess, what this, what this it looks like now, like what does it, your company look like now in terms of measuring microbial activity and what do you see in the future coming down oh, the line? It's changing every day and so we're we're working on three more scores that we hope to release within the next few weeks that are related to potentially toxins that are being detoxified by the microbes. And I mean, we 
forever thought that the liver was the master detoxifier in the human body, but it may in fact be our microbes that are more responsible for detoxifying than our liver is. So we're, we're going to come up with a, a detox score, and we're also going to be looking at the different pathways that would up or down regulate the production of neurotransmitters, so how the, the gut is literally um, tying into the brain and the, the chemical signaling molecules for for nerve transmission. So it's just this ongoing, our pathway scientists are very, very busy in their role of um, mapping all of this out and trying to make sense of it, and then trying to also coordinate what foods and potentially supplements will optimize things for people. That's awesome. Yeah, and I see on the front of my wellness overview, it says um, digestive efficiency coming soon, uh, detox potential coming soon, gut neurobalance coming soon. Um, And so are people who have already submitted their tests when these things become available, are they going to show up in their wellness overview? They are, and that's part of the the Viome service and why it's why we sort of... um, portray it as a one-year subscription. So as these these things are released, everybody that has a sample uh, on file will benefit from the, the new scores that are being released. Yeah, that's fascinating. That is, I can't wait to learn more about the um, detox potential yeah, and the neuro balance. It's exciting. I'm pretty excited too. <laughs> Dr. Held, speaking of new information and research that you're doing personally what are you excited about that you're seeing come through and in the area of biome health and biome science what's what's got your attention uh i think that the the detox is probably my own personal most fascinating um facet but we're also mapping out all of the constituents of Foods so that we can literally say this person needs you know, a low oxalate diet and a, they're fine with purines, but they need these extra glutathione producing molecules to help them with their detox. And then the artificial intelligence is able to pull foods one at a time for individuals um, so that their, that their diet is literally matching what their microbes need. I just find the whole thing mind-blowing. And speak a little bit about artificial intelligence and what's going on behind the scenes after you send your sample into Viome. Just knowing that there are so many different microbes and all of them are capable of up or down regulating thousands of different pathways is just, it's more information than a human brain could process. So the artificial intelligence engine is able to recognize patterns and keep track of all of this information and allows us to be able to, to do it for, you know, thousands of people, never mind uh, a, a human brain trying to do it for even one person. So it just allows us to scale um, and, and sort the most unbelievable amount of data. Um, and we would not be able to do this without the artificial intelligence behind it. And then we're very, very carefully training the uh, artificial intelligence to be able to recognize those patterns and be, being able to, like I said, do it in, in large scale. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's really kind of, I think, one of the unique factors. I know there are other competitors out there doing sim- testing, 
but I think your artificial intelligence behind it, the the algorithms, the math behind it is is fascinating. I'm sure it'll get mm-hmm. better and better as more people go through and uh, you learn more about the biome. Yes, as we identify more and more of the of the pathways and teach the AI engine what to be looking for, it'll be able to recognize it just instantaneously. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to begin to wrap up here. Aaron, do you have any final questions or thoughts? Um, there's just one last thing that I wanted to point out. I think uh, when you were both talking earlier, um, somehow like the idea, I think of metabolism came in and I just wanted to share with people who are listening that Viome gives these great recommendations for um, superfoods. They, they talk a little bit about in the recommendation section how uh, you metabolize protein and healthy fats. And they sort of um, confirmed something for me that I've already experienced personally in that it's like I require a higher amount of protein and good quality fats and that I burn through carbohydrates much faster, um, that it's just a quick burn for me and it doesn't give me a longer, more sustaining energy. Um, They kind of give a recommendation for the macronutrient ratios, like 30 to 40% protein, 30 to 40% fat, 25% complex carbohydrates. And I think that's really great. And that's something that um, really stands out with uh, Viome as a microbiome testing company, because I don't think too many people think about how much their microbiome is affecting and regulating their metabolism. It actually drives metabolism. So, yeah. and, and that can change for people too, right? As the, as the microbes change and the microbiome changes, the, the ratio of foods that macros that you need will also um, be altered. So just because you've always eaten one way doesn't mean that as as things change, that's the ideal way for you to continue to eat. But once again, you can just dial into the way it makes you feel. And if you've eaten something and you're cranky or exhausted afterward, you know, we can just step back and say, hmm, what was it that, that I did 90 minutes ago that isn't agreeing with me? Um, and mm-hmm. retesting as there are big changes in your life will allow us to provide you with, you know, whatever the foods are that are going to be most beneficial for the microbiome and for you at that point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a good point. I have patients in my practice who come in and say, you know, I've just started getting weighed and it's m- making me really cranky. And, you know, I'll ask them, so, you know, what are you doing different? And they'll say, absolutely nothing. I'm doing exactly the same thing. So normally you think of, okay, maybe, you know, it's hormonal changes beginning to kick in or perhaps even some insulin resistance. But what you're bringing up is a fabulous point too, that it could be a microbiome too. And that's something I really hadn't asked. Well, you know, when was the last time you had antibiotics or, you know, have you had uh, the the stomach flu or uh, uh, food poisoning in the past year or so anything to really throw things off or even, so that's, that's very, very helpful. People don't draw, Mm -hmm. draw their own timelines. I think that's a huge role for, for uh, practitioners is to sit back and be objective. And it's amazing how often people don't make that correlation that I was, everything was the same and, and now I'm not well. Have you been on antibiotics? Yes. Right. (laughs) uh, (laughs) But we're, we're not trained to make those, those sort of assessments of ourselves. It, It sometimes takes that third party to be able to do it. If we don't, and schools like this can facilitate that kind of level of self-awareness in patients. I feel like medicine will just be improved so much with self-aware patients. And so this is cool because it gets people to think about things like that and 
think about this other component of their health that, that McKay said that we're not usually thinking about when we're, we're discussing our health timelines. Well, we still really need, um, d- despite the fact that the, the machine learning is going to change change the way um, healthcare is practiced, we still need people to manage those relationships and to be motivating people and encouraging people and, and you know, just because the machine can tell people what to eat, it can't make them um, make the lifestyle choices and changes uh, mm-hmm. without, you know, you sort of still need that that personal contact and and coaching and advocacy and that sort of thing that I'm, you know, where there's, there's no way that you can replace the human in the healthcare model. Um, but it may just change the role of, of what the humans do. That, that's so true. Dr. Held, you've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate it. And I'd like to give you the final, final word. If there's anything you want to mention and uh, for folks to know. Um, just take care of your microbiome <laughs> <laughs> and it'll take care of you. <laughs> Perfect. Well said. Okay. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you so much. You know if there's anything else we can do. All right. You did a great job. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. This was a great episode. And, you know, Dr. Held mentioned the continued need for like human interaction in healthcare. Um, and I was reminded of a conversation that you have with Terry Walls about her hospital program that was simply teaching people how to cook and how successful she had been with that program. Do you remember that? Of course I remember yeah. speaking with Dr. Walls. And your point is that sometimes medicine is... Well, she's... We're talking about all of the great things that the artificial intelligence and Viome can do, but it's really doing things like speaking with Aaron Murphy or speaking with Dr. Held that or can listening to Lime or Ninja listening Radio. to Lime Ninja Radio. I get it. Yeah, that can inspire people to take that step. Like the the processing power is very interesting, but it's that human element that motivates people. I think it is important to remember and sometimes get lo- gets lost with all of the toys that and shiny toys that we get you know in school they talk about the difference between fixing and healing and perhaps that's the case you can fix something but maybe someone's not actually healed until they've interacted with somebody else just a thought If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, share this interview with a friend of yours. And if you really like what we're doing, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate it if you donate $1 a month through Patreon. Also, a big shout out to our newest patrons, Ginger and Meredith. For just one buck, you can help us make the world a better place for people with Lyme disease. Just head on over to our new homepage, www.limeninjaradio.com, and look for the Patreon link under the How Can We Help You section. 
And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know a ninja just won the World Poker Series? She won with a pair of dice. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.